Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The portion of Scripture for our meditation this morning is recorded for us, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. This is our second lesson for this seventh Sunday in Easter. Dear friends of Christ, how soon is soon? Well, that really all depends, I suppose you can say. It's a relative term, uh, of course. Soon in relation to what? For some, soon might be relatively quickly, and for somebody else, soon maybe may take a while. For instance, if you're on a family vacation and you're traveling cross-country, and a question comes from the back, or you're almost there, and let's say maybe it's 30 minutes before you get home, you could answer, Soon. But if you've been traveling in the car and you've been cooped up all day and maybe you have to go to the bathroom, 30 minutes can seem like an eternity. Or maybe if you're getting ready for work and you're kind of running behind and work starts in 30 minutes, soon it's going to come quickly. As you know, on Thursday, we celebrated Christ's ascension. And you may remember that when Christ ascended into heaven, he did so as he was rising up and he was covered by the clouds. And as the disciples were staring, standing there staring up into the sky, angels came and appeared to them. And they said that the same way that you saw Jesus go up into heaven on the clouds, you'll see him return. And that's something that the Bible talks about again and again, that Christ is going to come back on the last day. For instance, Paul says, and he goes into detail in 1 Thessalonians 4, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And that's something that the Bible reiterates again and again, of course, that when Christ returns, he's going to return for the purpose of taking us back with him, that we will dwell with Christ in heaven forever. And then we get in our text where Christ says, I am coming soon. Another way to translate that would be, I am coming quickly. But how soon is soon? And the skeptic really it jumps on that word soon, doesn't it? They say, you believe Christ is coming soon? Didn't Christ make that promise of almost 2,000 years ago? You would think that if Christ were going to come soon, he would have come by now. Especially if you think that Christ exists and Christ rose from the dead and Christ is now on his throne in heaven and if Christ keeps his word, 2,000 years later is not soon. And there's always that part of us. No matter how strong our faith is, there's always that part of us that questions that portion of God's word. Is Christ really going to come again? And if he said soon, then how come he isn't back yet? And if Christ is really going to come uh, again, doesn't he realize how horrible this life is? Doesn't he realize how much we're suffering and everything that's going on? Why doesn't he just end it so that we would live with him in heaven forever? And it doesn't matter how strong our faith is, there's always that little skeptic inside of us questioning portions of God's word, including this, that Christ claims to come soon. 
Well, let's look at what John says. And how Jesus describes himself in Revelation. In verse 13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, of course, are the, the first and the last words of the Greek alphabet. And Jesus tells us exactly what he means. He is the beginning and the end. He is the beginning of the world. As God, he existed before the creation of the world. And as God, he created the world. We read in John 1 that through him, through the word, all things were made. And when Christ comes again on the last day, that will be the end of the world. So he is the beginning and the end. He has always existed and he always will continue to exist. Without beginning, without end. Eternal. Existing before the creation of the world and will exist long after into eternity after the world has been destroyed. And then in verse 16, he says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And this is the last chapter of the Bible. And, and these are some of the last words that Jesus spoke. And at first glance, they kind of seem strange that Jesus would talk about this. Some of the last recorded words of Scripture. In these words, Jesus not only testifies to the fact that he is the promised Messiah, but he also points to something else. Again, he's pointing to his dual nature. He is the root of David. He is the source by which David comes. And if he's the source by which David comes, Jesus was born about a thousand years after David, that means that Jesus must be God. But he's also the offspring of David. And if Jesus is God, and yet the offspring of David, then he also must have become man and was a physical descendant of David. On top of that, he is the morning star. This most likely refers to Venus. Venus would rise in the east shortly before the dawn. And so when they saw Venus rise, they knew the sun was soon to follow. When we see Christ come again on the last day, that means eternity it's just one step away. So on some, one of the last times that Jesus spoke in Scripture, he mentions how he is the promised Messiah, the descendant of David. He's true God and true man. He is going to come again soon. Now what do all of these things have to do with each other? Well, of course, if Jesus isn't both true God and true man, then he cannot be our Savior. And if he's not our Savior, we don't care if he's going to come again or not. But there's more to it than that. Peter makes the connection between Jesus' divinity and his second coming. Peter writes, In the last days, scoffers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts. They will say, Where is this promised coming of his? But do not forget this one thing, dear friend, for the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. Jesus is eternal. He's not bound by space. He's not bound by time. He exists outside of time. So for Jesus, a thousand years is just like a day. For us, two thousand years seems like a long time. But when you're Jesus, when you're eternal, when you're not bound by time, it's just as if he's been gone for a day or two. It's not soon for us, but it is soon for the eternal Lord. 
and it's soon in comparison to the eternity that we will have with Jesus forever. And Peter then goes on to make the point, and Pastor Hafer mentioned this on Thursday, that the only reason that Christ has yet to return is because he's patient. Because he wants the whole world to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he's long in our perspective, long in coming, so that more would believe in him and join us in heaven forever. And that's what Jesus means when he says in verse 12, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each one according to what he has done. And that's great news, right? Christ is going to come again soon, and he's coming with a reward. But then we see that Christ is going to reward us according to what each of us has done. Uh Uh-oh, we might say. Because we know what we've done. And we know what we've left undone. We know that the good we want to do, we don't do. And the evil we don't want to do, that is what we keep on doing. We know how many times we fail to obey God's commands. What do we just confess at the beginning of our service today? We confess, I am sinful by nature and have sinned against you my thoughts, words, and actions. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved others as I should. I deserve your punishment both now and forever. When we look at ourselves, when we look at all that we've done, we must confess that we don't deserve a reward. We deserve to be punished eternally. In verse 15, Jesus points out those who are outside of heaven. He says, outside are the dogs, that is the sorcerers, the adulterers, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And make no mistake about it, we're the dogs. And that's not a term of endearment. Back then, dogs were kind of like wild pack animals that wreaked havoc uh, on neighborhoods, like a, a wild, mangy mutt. And the dogs, we describes them as sorcerers. I'm guessing no one here practices sorcery on a regular basis. But we do have the tendency to push away God. We do have the tendency to not trust in God and turn to other things like sorcerers do. Probably not too many people here are currently committing adultery. And yet we all have a problem with lust. We've probably never committed murder. And yet all of us have said and done many hateful and harmful things to each other. Not many of us are bowing down or praying to or worshiping false gods like Buddha or Allah. But we all have the problem of putting things ahead of God in our lives. How many times have we lied or or stretched the truth or exaggerated for our own personal gain and otherwise practiced falsehood? When we look at what we've done, when we look at who we are, and God says he's going to reward us according to what we have done, then we realize that we're in trouble. Or maybe not, because this phrase here that Jesus is going to reward us is not meant to scare us, it's meant to give us comfort, because we realize that only believers do good works, 
Not that our works in and themselves are good, but because everything that we have done has been washed away, washed clean by Christ. And we know that those without faith cannot do anything to please God. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right to the tree of life and so that they may enter through the gates into the city. Those who have washed their robes is a reference to Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 7, believers are described as those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus, of course, is the Lamb. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. When he died on the cross, he shed his blood, and by that blood, he purified us. By that blood, he removed the guilt of all of our sins, as far as east is from west. So they're not, they're not going to come back to us to haunt us or to condemn us. And it was on that cross that Jesus not only took away the guilt of all our sins, but he gave us his perfect life. He became sin for us so that we would be righteous in God's eyes. When God looks at us, he no longer sees us as, as sinners. He no longer sees us as his enemies, as children of the devil. He sees us as his own dear children whom he adopted through the waters of baptism. He sees us as pure, as holy as innocent, because Christ's righteousness or perfection has been credited to us. When he sees us, he doesn't see our wicked actions. He sees a perfect life of Christ, and he declares us not guilty on account of his Son. And our clothes, once, once stained red with sin, have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, and we are pure, holy, innocent, white, wearing the white robes of Christ's righteousness. And so we have access to heaven. In verse 14, he says, to those who have washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb, the Lord promises the right to the tree of life. The tree of life, of course, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, there are two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other tree, the tree of life. And anyone who ate from that tree lives forever. That's why Jesus kicked out Adam, and, that's why God kicked out Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, because in the sinful state, he did not want them to live forever. But our sins have been removed. We're not going to have a sinful state. We're not going to have pain or sorrow or any other problem in heaven. And so we eat from this tree and we live forever in paradise, free from sin, free from pain, free from sorrow, weeping, and the gnashing of teeth. And this tree of life that gives eternal life sits on the banks of the water of life. And earlier in this chapter, the water of life is described as a river that flows through the city that is heaven. Jesus, of course, is the water of life, as we know from the Gospel of John. And he also says here in verse 17, Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. This water of life that is eternal life is given to us as a gift. Not as something earned, not as something deserved because we can't earn it, we can't deserve it, but given to us because God is gracious, loving, and merciful that he gives us this gift of eternal life 
forever. In heaven. And there's no place like it. Heaven is so great and so beyond explanation and comparison that we can't even think about how awesome it's going to be. Even the best of what the earth has to offer pales in comparison to heaven. And we must admit that the earth rarely gives us what it has best to offer. And so we long for that day to come. We long to, to move on from this veil of tears from the church militant to the church triumphant. And we say along with John, Lord, come quickly. Come to take us home. Come to take us to live you in paradise forever. That we may sing your praises for your eternal victory. Christ says he's coming again soon. How soon is soon? Maybe it's soon, not soon for us, but in comparison to the eternal Lord, comparison to the eternity, the never-ending glory that we will have in heaven, it will be soon. And soon we'll sing His praises as we dwell with Him forever. And so we say along with John, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand.